It's a timeless story, and it's a story for all times. Did my heart love till now, forswear its sight, for I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Romeo and Juliet is popular. When high schools or theaters want to introduce kids or new audiences to Shakespeare, often they do it with Romeo and Juliet. So today, when theaters are shut down and all of us are still looking forward to hugging and kissing and holding hands safely again, It may not be surprising that there's a welter of new Romeo and Juliet productions out there. There's a new Spanish-English podcast version. There's Romeo hashtag Juliet that made a splash at Sundance. And there's the production we'll be talking about on this program, the latest edition of the PBS series Great Performances. Romeo and Juliet, directed by the new artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company of Washington, Simon Godwin. Simon joined us from a studio in Northwest DC to talk about the play and the challenges of performing and producing it during a global pandemic. We call this podcast, Never Was a Story of More Woe. Simon Godwin is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Simon, I was thinking that Romeo and Juliet must be the Shakespeare play that most of us know best. I mean, it's one I grew up with, with, you know, I saw it in theaters, and but also on movie screens and all sorts of versions. So how do you get yourself to see it through fresh eyes? Well, I think um, Romeo and Juliet, like so many of Shakespeare's plays, is a text that we think we know. Uh, but when we come back to it, it's full of surprises and secrets. Um, I think that you, I, start by reading the play extremely carefully, going back and absolutely having a think about how it's been done before, and also trying to find this very complex relationship between the moment when the play is staged and the play itself. What's the dialogue between Shakespeare's text and today? And hopefully through those kind of connections, you can discover a way of breathing new life into uh, into in this case, Romeo and Juliet. And in this case, were you, how were you working with the cast then to, to kind of all get on the same page or inspire each other? Well, I think this was a very particular event. Um, originally, the production had been scheduled for the Olivier Theatre, and uh, I was expecting it to be a fairly, um, if not, not traditional, but certainly a, a way of creating Shakespeare that I was familiar with, having directed Twelfth Night there before and Anthony and Cleopatra there before. Then, of course, COVID arrived and the production was cancelled and I was faced with an extraordinary challenge which was can we pivot from a play to a film of Romeo and Juliet. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage which but their children's end naught could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. That breathed new energy into the experiment because the film was not something that I'd ever done before. I hadn't even directed a short film. So the idea of creating this play in a totally new medium was very exciting, if nerve-wracking. Here comes one of the House of Montague. Quarrel, I will back thee. 
we were given the parameters of making this film entirely on the stage of the Littleton Theatre, which is one of the three auditorium at the National Theatre. So we knew we couldn't leave there. We couldn't have any natural light. We certainly couldn't go to any traditional locations. How would we cope? Have it, the coward. As the Stoics remarked, the obstacle is the way. And that was keenly the case for us. COVID demanded a totally new way of working. And what we discovered was that in a context in which touch was extremely charged and indeed dangerous, that atmosphere actually informed our approach to Shakespeare's play, where touch is, of course, very dangerous too. Uh, to fall in love with someone on the wrong family, on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, is it could cause you to die. So the, the whole feeling of uh, a physical engagement uh, uh, acquired a new intensity in this experience, which actually helped to serve Shakespeare's play. Stepping back from the COVID aspects of this, when you look at Romeo and Juliet, it does seem like a performance of Beethoven's Fifth in that we can all hum these bars. And often people are waiting for the balcony scene or the, or the greatest hits of the famous lines. And it's perhaps, I don't know, a little harder to make it your own. Yes, I think, as you say, one is always feeling a little bit intimidated. Uh, having said that, Stanislavski, the great director and actor, uh, teacher of acting, had this wonderful phrase, the magic if. If you were in the situation that these characters find themselves in, how would you behave? And I think if one asks that question honestly of oneself and one's collaborators, your version, your response, your associations will always be unique. Why, how now, kinsman? Wherefore storm you so? Dear aunt, this is a Montague, our foe. Young Romeo, is it? Tis he, that villain Romeo. I would not for the wealth of all this town here in my house do him disparagement. Therefore, be patient, take no note of him. It is my will. I'll not endure him. He shall be endured. Am I the mistress here, or you? You too. You'll not endure him. <gasps> God shall lend my soul. You'll make a mutiny among my guests. Why, my aunt, tis a shame. You can just let it simmer inside you. And as you speak those words, as you think about the lighting and the set and the story, it will emerge from you in a very invigorating and fresh way. Oh, that's wonderful. So so you're looking for that organic freedom and that organic process. And maybe this, then my next question doesn't even apply because when you're, say, directing Hamlet or some of the other you know, big, big crowd-pleasing Shakespeare plays, you do face big picture decisions from the start and you can decide, well, Hamlet, it's it's the revenge play. I'm going to take that direction or it's a family play or Henry V, this is a war play. Does that even come into your thinking when you approach a play like Romeo and Juliet? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, Brecht, uh, I'm reminded of uh, his line, don't start with the good old things, start with the bad new things. So with Romeo and Juliet, it was not so much about thinking about the past or how it had been done before or, 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 or the sort of nostalgia in the play. It was about thinking, how could I make a very invigorating, fresh, spirited 
play that was in some level expressive of the pressures all of us feel right now. And you said uh, a, a bit earlier that part of that is that because of the pandemic, you were going to, you were rethinking how you're going to stage it, and it's going to be a film, and there was the distancing issue. So you, as you said, you're you're primarily primarily a theater director. So was this your absolute first time doing what's in essence a, a film? Absolutely. Um, I had never even picked up a camera before. I'd never made a short film. I, I don't, in fact, uh, I should confess to you, even own a television set. So this was a very different um, approach. And I had a very kind and patient cinematographer. Uh, he was. We had four weeks of rehearsal before we shot the film over 17 days. And so every day of the rehearsals, he would come in early and would essentially put me through a fast-track film school. And it was day one, this is a close-up. Day two, this is a wide shot. And it really was as basic as that. And he would sellotape examples of these shots on the wall. And and the whole process was filled with sort of moments of of, uh, humiliating discovery. So another moment I remember is when I was uh, struck in the first week of rehearsals by how quiet the actors were talking. And Tamsin Gregg, who played who plays Lady Capulet. Very uh, quietly I, I said, and coldly, yes. Very quietly, very cold. That's and wonderful. I actually said to Tamsin, oh, oh I'm, a bit, I'm a bit worried that I won't, I can't really hear you, Tamsin. She said, well, Simon, this is a film. We don't have to shout. And, <laughs> I hope everyone I, was kind how, with you <laughs> and patient. Well, thank you. But, <laughs> but certainly it struck me how much of my job normally is essentially encouraging people to speak up, be bigger bolder. Whereas, of course, the filmic journey is absolutely the opposite. It's about distillation, intensity, intimacy. And um, so, yeah, it was a pretty uh, steep learning curve. Okay, let's talk about some of that distillation. And I should say, this this is very cinematic from the start, what you're doing. The, the Capulet's Ball it's more like a, a techno disco or rave, you know, music video vibe. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle fine is this, my lips, two blushing pilgrims ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands, but pilgrims' hands do touch. And palm to palm is holy power's kiss. And Romeo and Juliet's first kiss is intercut with a kind of falling in love montage. Um, in fact, there's a lot of intercutting right from the start of the production. Tell us about that. Well, I think there's two things that I was trying to do with the intercutting. We open the film with the actors arriving into a shuttered theatre in their own clothes, gathering together as if to say, as an act of solidarity, a ritual of creativity they've gathered together for themselves with no audience to tell this story. And as the film goes on, the the worlds that they're imagining become more and more realized. And as I was working in this way, I realized that there there were two things that this showed, if you like, about Shakespeare's text and also about love itself. When you fall in love with somebody, you live in two worlds. You live in a kind of fantasy world. You live in the great masked ball. You live in a world of hope and desire and fantasy but you are also seeking to be your most authentic self. So when Romeo and Juliet meet in the film and we cut between the meeting at the, at the party, the hedonistic, wild party of their dreams, 
we also cut between them meeting, as it were, in the rehearsal room, with no one else present, being totally free, playful, and themselves. And and so, of course, as that moves on, the, the film continues to shift between these two worlds. And increasingly, as the realities of Romeo and Juliet as characters becomes more and more fractured, culminating in Juliet uh, holding that bottle that she's been advised to take, which is going to uh, lead her to appear to have died, uh, she, as in the language, becomes haunted by what's going to happen to me? Where am I? What ghosts might I encounter? Or if I live, is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night? Together with the terror of the place as in a vault. An ancient receptacle where for this many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed. We're bloody pibbled yet but green in earth lies festering in his shroud. Where, as they say, at some hours in the night, spirits resort and shriek like mandrakes torn out of the earth, the living mortals hearing them run mad. And in that sequence, we deliberately collapse realities so that this is an actress in a play, it's an actress who's in a film, it's Juliet in a drama that she's writing, being unsure what she should do and the line between the real and the imaginary. And the second thing I think as I worked in this way, I realized how numerous the references are in Shakespeare's own writing to the future. How often characters flash forward in their language. And there's a moment when Romeo is about to go to the party where he'll meet Juliet and he says to Mercutio, I dreamt that if I go to this party it will lead to my death. And even later on when he's finally found in Mantua by a character that tells him that Juliet has died, he says, I, I, I dreamt that my lady came and found me dead. So these are all very strange flash forwards. And I think what Shakespeare's doing is, is talking about fate and how desire and fate relate to each other. When you fall in love with somebody, your life is no longer quite your own. You're on a train, which is going to take you to places that you probably can't control. And of course, in the world of cinema, I could not only have that in the language, I could also create pictures. I could create actual flash forwards so that as an audience, we too are privy to what was going to happen to these characters. And in a way, of course, what makes tragedy so unbearable is that something is laid out that the characters cannot themselves prevent. Wow. So the setting in the theatre and also the pandemic setting, which is the reason that you're making it more of a film than than a work of theater, that all leads to all the layerings that we want from Shakespeare, really. I'm thinking back to the last interview we did about Romeo and Juliet. It was about how many references there are to astronomy and what it tells us about science and math and at that time and what Shakespeare knew. And it's just such a example of how many different directions you can go with with the text. But how, to put a finer point on the difference between staging for the theater and and creating this cinematic version, talk about the Queen Mab speech sequence, because that's also very cinematic. And you, you give the scene motion also with intercutting rather than the movement of the actors. So how would you have staged the Queen Mab speech in a theater? Then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an older man. 
Well, I suppose if had I been doing it in the theatre, um, I would have been very preoccupied with having a lot of movement because certainly when you're in the uh, Olivier Theatre, which is this colossal stage, which is it's um, a, a kind of thrust stage, so you have audience uh, not only in front of you but to the sides as well. You're, you're having to move around a lot to give as many people as possible access to the actor's face and to make Very it as public. Very practical choices, yeah. Yeah, 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 completely. As public and as accessible uh, a gesture as possible. Now, of course, in cinema, the more movement you have, the more shots you have to achieve. And the more shots you have to achieve, the longer it's going to take. I was in a position of having 17 days to film the whole thing. So it became absolutely essential that movement was extremely focused. And that was a huge contrast for my whole process. But it was fascinating for the actors, particularly for Mercutio, who hadn't done a lot of screen work before, to let the camera in, to trust the camera, and to allow the movement to be in the language and in the voice uh, as much as in the body. Then dreams he of cutting foreign throats, of breaches, ambushes, Spanish blades of hells, five fathoms deep, and then anon drums in his ear at which he starts and wakes, and being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two and sleeps again. This is the very man who... So the movement in the voice as opposed to the body, this brings us to the paring down of the language. And... How did that work in the scene? How, what was your experience of, were you taking more and more away as you went along, or did you take too much? How did people, your actors, react? Well, I think we were given quite a clear set of parameters that this was going to be something that was going to be on television and that the optimum running time would be around 90 minutes. Back to the obstacle is the way. I thought, okay, well, Shakespeare says talks about the two hours traffic of our stage, Two hours was what Shakespeare had in mind. We were at 90 minutes. So I realized, yes, we had to make some bold cuts. I personally have a very relaxed attitude about editing and about cutting, not least because, as we talked about already, a play is famous as Romeo and Juliet. It means you're going to have the chance to see this play in many, many different versions over a lifetime. And ultimately, of course, Shakespeare will outlive all of us. So for me, it was exciting to go, right, this will be a version of Romeo and Juliet that's probably going to reach thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people who actually haven't seen the play before. So I had to create a really pithy, urgent, passionate account of the play that made sense, but did not linger in any of the kind of uh, luxuriousness that perhaps doing it on stage gives you. Okay, now that's difficult. And I can only imagine because we, as I said, we all have our favorite lines. I'm sure you do. You have, you luxuriate in the language. Uh, And one of the things I, I mean, there's so many things you could say about cutting lines. But one of the things I did notice is that you pass up the opportunities to play up any bodiness in the script. There's the the nurse's fallback speech is, is not there in the part of Queen Mab about lips, hands and lips, and, and Juliet's any other part of a man, the Mercutio's prick of noon. I'll cut off their heads of the maids or the maiden heads, all that stuff. So m- maybe this was not even, didn't even come up as a choice, but what was behind choices like that? Well, I think... Bordiness in Shakespeare is notoriously hard to pull off. Oh, yeah. uh, anyway, <laughs> and I think often you need quite uh, vivid uh, 
gestures to sometimes illuminate the comic language. I'm, I'm sure 400 years ago, the boardiness would have been very um, present, very enjoyed by the audience. I'm sure many of the audience would have come to the place to see the bawdy parts. The code, uh, the vocabulary, is in itself uh, become much more obscure for us. And I think bawdy works best when there's a, a live audience that are in a way working together to explain a line by this ripple effect of laughter. And I think when you're watching, as we will inevitably be doing, watching this film in your own homes, it's much more difficult to process that uh, bawdy joyousness. And, And so I felt like if I had to cut anyway, maybe focusing on the story and also making some changes which we can speak about for example um giving the lines traditionally spoken by lord capulet to lady capulet or um bringing out a love affair between mercutio and bedvolio all of these things were were ways of um yeah leaning into something new whilst letting other things go i tell thee what get thee to church a thursday or never after look me in the face Speak not, reply not, do not answer me. Yeah, I want to jump on that because you do make Lady Capulet the heavy instead of her husband, and she gets all those hang, beg, starve, die in the streets lines when she's talking to Juliet, uh, trying to bend her to her will. Um, And she's just hard as nails. And I'm already a big Tamsman Greg fan, um, but mostly from her comic performance in the TV show episodes. So it was a real eye-opener to see how terrifying she can be as a dramatic actress. So you've already explained a little bit why you did give Lady Capulet uh, the, the juicy parts, but... Tell us your concept of her as so bone-chillingly, quietly cold-hearted. Thursday is near. Lay hand on heart, advise. And you be mine, I'll give you to my friend. And you be not. Hang, beg. Starve. Die in the streets. By myself, I'll ne'er acknowledge thee. My relationship with Tamsin began when she played not Malvolio, but Malvolia in my production of Twelfth Night, also at the National Theatre. And she was absolutely extraordinary playing Malvolia as very much a woman who was in love with her female boss. And she brought uh, drama and pathos and extraordinary comic vitality to that character. And for me, I think reading Romeo and Juliet, I'm conscious that this, in a way, over-familiar image of a man being verbally and often physically abusive to his daughter was something I felt we didn't need to see again. And so the idea of shifting from the patriarchal family to a matriarchal family and the matriarch exuding or uh, demonstrating her power in a way that was very different from any other way we'd seen before, and perhaps gave us a glimpse into another theme in the play, which is the wish to be held. Oh, sweet my mother, cast me not away. Delay this marriage by a month, a week. Riff, thou do not make my bridal bed in that dim monument where Tybalt lies. There are quite a lot of images in the film of, in this case, Juliet wanting to be held by her mother at the end of a very violent scene and the mother just not being able to return that affection. And of course, here was interesting because Tamsin has spoken since about how the COVID context 
really informed the coldness that you describe. She herself was very frightened of touching anybody. So for her, that became a, actually something that she really used in creating a character that was profoundly detached from her own body. And that was a fascinating, I think, example of the context determining the content. Yes, and of, of kind of psychological violence. And and also a kind of a layering. You feel like uh, Lady Capulet was never loved, so she doesn't know how mm. to or, or can't, doesn't even have the vocabulary to deal with with her child in this situation. Um, now let's talk about Romeo and Juliet because the age of the actors, of the lovers, is always a question. And the most famous ones are all over the map. You have Olivia Hussey was 16 and Claire Danes was 17 and Orlando Bloom was 36, although that was hard to believe. Leslie Howard was <laughs> 43. Um, so how did you come to choose your actors of this particular age, but also these particular actors? Sweet. Good night. Wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. So I had met Joshua Connor, who plays Romeo, when he was at theatre school, when he was uh, a very young man. I was working at the Bristol Old Vic at that moment as an associate director. I was based in Bristol and I met Josh and was totally amazed and uh, charmed by him. And, and so cut forward some years to me casting Romeo and Juliet for the Olivier Theatre as it was going to as be then. And I had recently directed Anthony and Cleopatra with Ray Fiennes and Sophia Canedo in the same space. And I had been very uh, I'd become very aware of the degree of textual expertise that is required in that huge theatre. And I think what was interesting about Romeo and Juliet is that they're young characters, but they both say a tremendous amount. And the language that they have is extremely intricate and complicated. And I felt like in order to do the language justice, I needed actors with a certain degree of experience. So when Josh walked in for an audition for Romeo, uh, before The Crown, the first series of The Crown had come out, I was so thrilled to re-encounter Josh, who had obviously grown up, but still carried a kind of tenderness in his heart. So I invited Josh to play Romeo. And then the second thing I thought was absolutely essential, and the reason why many times in the theatre I had seen the play not work, was chemistry. It was vital that Romeo and Juliet in some level, were able to access a love. I have more care to stay than will to go. Come death and welcome, Juliet wills it so. How is my soul? Let's talk, it is not day. It is, it is. I hence be gone away. It is the lark that sings so out of tune, straining harsh discords and unpleasing sharps. Oh no, be gone. And so I talked to Josh about Juliet, and, and he actually mentioned Jesse as somebody that he'd known for a really, really long time. And um, we invited Jesse to come to the Olivier, and Josh and Jesse and I stood on the stage and said some of the words out loud. And I, I realised that without any directing on my part or any kind of um, uh, provocation, there was just this deep natural affinity between them as human beings. And at that moment, I thought, well, I'm not sure I'm that interested in... Uh, a 13-year-old girl being taken into a very feckless, rather naive um, journey, which is all coloured with many, many kinds of problematic political questions. I thought, well, what would it be like if these were people were who were grown up a little bit, who have already been in love? In the case of Romeo, we know that he's in love with Rosalind at the beginning. And one does something which is more based around the idea of when you are in love, you go a bit crazy. 
And that's the case if you're 15, if you're 25, if you're 55. And we can move away from very, as it were, naturalistic ages into a much deeper kind of obsessiveness uh, and intensity, uh, both which um, I felt Josh and Jesse could deliver on. Come, civil night. Come, thou sober, suited matron, all in black. Hood my unmanned blood baiting in my cheeks with thy black mantle, till strange love grow bold. Think true love acted simple modesty. You mentioned Josh O'Connor was in The Crown, and he played Prince Charles, a very cool, um, cerebral, bloodless Prince Charles. And here he he is tender, as you say, but he also is a pretty cerebral Romeo. Unlike, I'm thinking, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio practically cries in almost every scene in his movie. Tell me, Friar, tell me what vile part of this anatomy doth my name lodge. Tell me that I may sack the hateful Hold thy desperate hand! Hast thou slain Tybalt? Wilt thou slay thyself and slay thy lady that in thy life lives by doing damned hate upon thyself? Is that just Josh O'Connor? Is that his choice? That's who he is? Or is there, are you in there too? Is it a little bit of both of you collaborating on this? (laughs) Yes, I I, I think I have to take responsibility that I inevitably the director is sort of uh, on the line in all the choices as well. Uh, important, but also uh, uh, is revealed, let's say. Like present? what's extraordinary is when you watch a play, it's present, exactly, in ways that sometimes you, you don't necessarily expect or indeed or indeed seek. Uh, but when you watch something that you've made, you're also surprised by, oh, right, that probably does reveal something about me unconsciously. Um, I think that Josh was... It, was interested in this way that he's described by his father at the beginning when his father says, black and portentous must this humour prove. I think he's really talking about Romeo being depressed. And I think that there's a great darkness in Romeo and a great, yes, a, a sense of the sort of self-torture. And we know, of course, that he also kills people. So this is not really the sort of r- romantic, sentimental hero that sometimes he's portrayed as being. This is somebody who is over-thoughtful at times and over-emotional at others, somebody that's on a spectrum. And I think Josh was very interested in bringing all of those corners to light. Now, we've talked about the pandemic all throughout this, but I do just have some practical questions about making art during COVID. Um, What were the logistics? How long did everyone in your cast have to quarantine in order for you to pull this off safely? Well, there was uh, the, the biggest part of it was the testing regime. So we were all tested between two and three times a week. And we rehearsed, socially distanced, wearing masks. Um, People lived in bubbles. I, of course, coming from America, as I did, was two weeks of seeing nobody in quarantine. And then they gave me a bicycle and a flat very near the theatre. So I could literally just cycle and minimise my contact on my journey into work each day. All of that meant, of course, that we had to schedule things very, very carefully because it was deemed that we were least at risk in the few hours after the negative result of the testing. So you had to schedule the uh, fights or or the romantic scenes very particularly. So you had the test, you waited 20 minutes for the result, all clear. Then before you left the building again, go. That's when you had to shoot and record. That's and, and it, met, it even yeah. it even dictated uh, the timing of your scenes or your or your shoot schedule. Absolutely, huh? Absolutely, and 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 again, but it meant that when you opened the floodgates to this 
fighting or this feeling or this touching. And I, and I think of a, a motif in the film of Romeo and Juliet hands touching at the party. And it really feels like so much weight and intensity was invested in, in moments such as that. So, uh, yeah, it, was, it was, had a huge practical implication as well as an artistic one. Well, we seem... Now, I don't know if this is true, but we seem to be in, a, in somewhat of a Romeo and Juliet renaissance right now. There's, there's the Romeo hashtag Juliet, the new movie, and there's uh, Romeo and Julieta that uh, the public just did, the public theater just did as a podcast, and now there's your production on PBS. Um, do you have any thoughts about why directors or theaters are turning to Romeo and Juliet, this play, right now? Well, I think that uh, it's often the case, isn't it, when there's a little kind of, uh, to call it a phrase, kind of rash of plays, uh, of the same play that, that appears. Um, and I think it's fascinating trying to understand why. In this case, I think Romeo and Juliet, of course, is a story of love. And I think at a time of such uh, anguish, separation, isolation, stories about intense feeling and intense connection um, acquire a new urgency. They're a kind of wish, a uh, wish fulfillment even. We can't necessarily touch each other. So we dream about touching each other, about connecting, about loving. Um, I think that there's also something in the reverse, though, in Romeo and Juliet, which is the all-pervasive feeling of death. We've spoken in our conversation today about this feeling of the flash forward, the, the prophecy, the sense of, of doom riding, completely sewn into the plague. And of course, in Shakespeare's original, there's a very important reference to the plague. The plague is what prevents Friar Lawrence getting the true message to Romeo. So there's, I think uh, this is a pandemic play. I mean, we know Shakespeare's theatre was often closed down due to the plague. So there's an intensity and a feeling of mortality in the play, which I think we can also recognise, sadly, today. Sadly, but so lovely to talk with you today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Well, thank you. It's been great to talk, and thank you for your wonderful questions. Simon Godwin is the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington. The production of Romeo and Juliet that he directed for the PBS series Great Performances premieres Friday, April 23rd at 9 p.m. Eastern. It stars Josh O'Connor as Romeo and Jesse Buckley as Juliet. You can also watch it at pbs.org gperf or on the PBS video app. Check local listings for a time near you. Simon was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Never Was a Story of More Woe, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Clean Cut Studios in Washington, D.C. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.